0: This is week three of four of our study of Jonah, and again we're so grateful to have TC with us again today. And in that spirit, we'll open in prayer. Father God, we pause after the stormy day to see the sun, and it reminds us that you are light. We're told that your word is a light to our path. A light that illuminates a path not to a heaven that we conceive that brings us human happiness. But a path that leads to your kingdom that brings us spiritual joy. And we're told that that place is really inside of us. So what we learn today is not what we know but light to your kingdom that somehow illuminates our souls that we might be more mature and we we might be of service to you. And it is in that spirit that we ask For your blessing this morning on this time, and in particular our speaker, that we learn the lessons and see the light of your kingdom, both now and forever. To your glorious name we pray, in the name of your son Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Good morning, welcome back. Why is this loud? push it out a little. How's that? All right. We're starting chapter 3 of Jonah, so if you got your Bibles, uh, again, we'll just work through our passage. There's lots and lots of interesting stuff going on in chapter 3 because it's really building to chapter 4 when God and Jonah will have it out. Uh, But until then, (coughs) excuse me, we've got a... uh, a very theologically difficult chapter. And so I'm going to bring some of those things to light and and see if we can work through this. Um, Chapter 1 and chapter 3 parallel each other in ways that are clearly intentional. So if you've got your uh, Bible, flip back and forth between chapter 1 and chapter 3 with me, okay? So I'm going to be reading from chapter 3. And we'll slow down so you can go back and forth. <clears throat> Chapter three, verse one reads, uh, and it was the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying. It reads like this in Hebrew. I'm just gonna. I don't. I know you can't understand it, but hear the sounds, okay? <inaudible> Chapter one, El Yonah. <inaudible> word for word. Now, I don't know how your English translations do that. Some translations are really good at showing those things. So, for example, I think the NASB does it, N-A-S-B does it word for word to show that it's starting all over again. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. So the the Ben Amittai, son of Amittai, is gone because we know who Jonah is now. And it's been replaced with a single word a second time. Second time is a single word in Hebrew, a second so we're really setting the stage for chapter 1 to begin all over again cuz it didn't work, did it? Chapter 1, God says and and, and that's where the s- verse 2 continues. Verse 2 says, "Kum, chapter 3. Get up. Go. Kum lech. Get up, go. El Nineveh, to Nineveh." Chapter 1, word for word. Kum, get up. Lech, go. El Nineveh, Ha'ir Hagodala, the city, the great, the great city. It changes a little again, uh, just like Ben Amittai, the son of Amittai, was replaced with a second time. Uh, this verse changes and cry to it the declaration or proclamation that I am giving to you or, or, or will give to you. I should nice. Yeah, clear. There we go. We had a couple of Hebrew words that we learned last time. We're going to go over those again. Here's one. Kara. Kara is to proclaim or cry out. So Jonah is told, get up, kum, go, and cry out. We're, we're going to see this word a few times today. It's fascinating how this word works throughout. And the kum. Uh, did, we did, did, that, did I show you the word kum? Probably not. Uh, there's another word. Kum. means to rise or arise or get up. Oh, and since we're doing Hebrew, <laughs> this one I, sh- I said a, a couple of times... And this is going to be a big word for us, ra'ah. Ra'ah means evil, wickedness. Uh, It it was introduced in chapter one. Uh, It says, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, because its sin, its wickedness, its ra'ah has come up before me. Uh, I talked about how this is the the cosmology of the ancient near world uh, that that God is somehow above creation and that the sin is so great, their wickedness is so great that it's come up to the, the, the heavenly counsel of God so that God can no longer ignore this. <clears throat> All right, so keep those words in mind. We're going to work through the rest of the passage. So get up and go to the great city. And it says, the cry out against it, and then it gives you a noun form of this korea. Kara is to cry out in the verb. Kari'ah is the noun form. So proclaim the proclamation that I am giving to you. Very specific. In other words, don't make stuff up. <laughs> uh, I, I know you're tempted to, to go and tell them something uh, that, you know, because now Jonah's going to go. But when you, when you get there, just say the words that I'm giving to you. And then verse 3 begins exactly like verse three of chapter one. Vayakam Yonah. So Jonah got up. In chapter one it says, so Jonah got up to flee. This time it says Jonah got up and he went. It's wonders what a spanking will do, right? <laughs> or a trip to the whale. <laughs> right, trip to the whale. So he he gets he gets he gets out of the whale uh, with, with, was essentially disciplined by God. Uh, and now he says, all right, I, I don't want to do that again. So he goes. He goes to Nineveh. And it, again, very specific. According to the word of the Lord, because it says, word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying in chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this time he gets up and goes, according to the word of the Lord. And then we have a parenthetical, what's called a disjunctive clause here, a parenthetical clause. And most translations will say something like now, Uh, right? Now Nineveh. So we're leaving the story behind just for a bit. And and the author is giving you information that you need in order to understand what's going on in the story better. And this is something that's kind of interesting because the story will take off with the same idea that the background is, is, is applying. So it says, now Nineveh, Well, it's a great city. Well, we knew that, didn't we? It said great city, great city, great city over and over. How great is this? (coughs) How how does your translation render this? Exceedingly Exceedingly great. Any others? Sorry? Very important. Three days walk. walk. Yeah, we get that just just, uh, uh, immediately following that. This strange occurrence here. Exceedingly great, very important. The word is literally to God. Does your, some, some translations will give you a footnote that says, literally in Hebrew, to God. It says the city was so great to God, lay Elohim, Elohim God lay too. What does this mean? How can a city be so great to God? Remember, again, the idea uh, is that God is above the heavens. This city is so great. Now, it's hyperbole. This is, this is so great, it has reached God. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Let's build a tower big enough that we can reach the heavens. In other words, they're thinking, you know, we can be gods. But God has to come down and see this tiny tower. Remember that story? And God came down to see what they were doing. As if God can't look. So, the story is doesn't in Babel isn't about the huge tower at all. It's tiny. It's so small that God has come down. But this city is huge. Uh, very important. Exceedingly great. Unto God. My son likes, hyper- he's 12, and he's hit that stage, I think, linguistically. He just loves hyperbole. Um, everything is just awesome, <laughs> everything is just incredible. The best ever. Uh, And and he'll say things like, he loves my cooking. And he'll say things like, and he's picked this, uh, I don't know where he picked this up. He says, this is divine. (laughs) Uh, And and he could be a burger. (laughs) So when I grill a burger, and he likes my burgers, and he says, this is a divine burger. He's 12. So it makes me laugh, because it doesn't seem quite right to call a hamburger divine. But I know what he means. Uh, he's exaggerating to the point of including God into this, right? And sometimes he'll say things like, these are fries that Jesus would love. Uh, <laughs> then then I, know, I know what he's saying. I know what he's saying. He's really enjoying my food. This is a city to God. It is a divine hyperbole. You get the same idea. And then we get this interesting background. Uh, mahalak, ma, uh, a walk. A walk of three days. Now, this, again, uh, is information that seems random, like, okay, three days walk, why do we need that information? Whenever an, uh, an author, a storyteller, gives you extraneous information, spe- unless it's just some, somebody who doesn't know how to tell a story like me sometimes, but if it's a good author, telling you information that you think, you, wh- why are you telling it, why? It's important. Because immediately following this, we get the story of Jonah. So it's a three days walk. Keep that in mind. Huge city, three days walk. Now there's debate. Is it three days to walk around the city? Is it three days walk through the city? Is it three days to go throughout the city? Like cover the whole city. Uh, That's not important. Again, you're asking an ontological reality question when the author is simply giving you information that the author is going to twist a bit, not twist, uh, utilize for a, a literary purpose. Okay, so we got three days. Verse four. Uh, the word there in the halal is to begin. So just initiate or to start to. So Jonah starts to or begins to go into the city. What, what do you got there? One day. So the same word, uh, which we haven't had up to this point, mahalach, means to, a what I'm sorry, mahalach, a walk. We get a walk of one day. So three days it takes, whatever that means. But Jonah starts. Uh, this is an interesting choice of words. It doesn't say Jonah went into the city, which would be the most natural uh, storytelling. In fact, this word begin to, start to, emphasizes just the beginning. Okay, so Jonah is just beginning to enter the city one day in contrast to three days. What does that mean? We'll come back to that. One day, and then he cries out, and he says. Now, in Hebrew, this is five words, okay? Yet, 40 days... Nineveh, and then the fifth word is, will be overthrown. Uh, the word hafah is the Hebrew word, and Hebrew can take on imperfect and person and all that. So one verb can take uh, five, sev- several English words. So it says, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. This is the only oracle in the book of Jonah. Well, what's the big deal? Think about all the other prophets, the books of the prophets. Uh, Jonah belongs in what's called the the Book of the Twelve with minor prophets. So it begins Hosea, almost entirely oracles, right? The word of, of the Lord, he just speaks. Joel, all oracles. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Obadiah, we got Jonah. And then we follow Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, correct? all oracular. In fact, if you, if you look at Jeremiah, for example, it's a huge book, it's a major prophet, that's why it's called a major prophet. He's not more important, it's just bigger. That's what the word major is there. Jeremiah has some stories throughout. And scholars say, look how interesting this is. We have stories. Instead of just a whole series of oracles, like Isaiah, for example, which has very little narrative. There's a little bit of narrative in Isaiah, but not a whole lot. In other words, every other prophetic book is just filled with oracles. Oracles, by the way, it's a a a genre of God speaking through the prophet. So when a prophet says things like, thus says the Lord, and just starts to speak for the Lord, either in the first person as God, or third person referring to God in the third person, either way, that's, that's that's an oracle. And that's typically just the book of a prophet. And here, Jonah is unique in that we only have five words of, of an oracle, and rest is just storytelling. And so, it's, it, this is a unique book in many ways. It's a, it's a short story. It's, a, it's the only prophetic book that is in, almost entirely a, a narrative, a story. And it's got this one little oracle. Now, here's the other interesting part about this oracle. I know I'm giving you a lot of Hebrew today. Uh, Shuv. Shuv means to turn or return. Looks like that in Hebrew. Shuv, turn. And then this word, Nacham. Repent. Those two words are the, the most often cited, often used, often employed uh, phrase by the prophets. Think about it, all the prophets. The prophets love telling people, hey, okay, all right, you guys are doing terrible things. Whether it be religious sins like worshiping Baal or bringing prostitution into the temple of God or oppressing the poor and the widow and the orphan. Prophets will tell you, you're doing something Awful. Therefore, shuv, return to the Lord. Nacham, repent. Shuv, nacham. Uh, throughout the prophetic literature, and in this only short oracle that we have, you would think that those would feature prominently. Repent, turn. By the way, Shuv has this this idea. You're walking this way. Shuv. Nacham has a different sense. And the King James, which is what we have adopted as Christians in in, in the West, the King James, uh, the English-speaking world, we use the word repent. We don't use it outside church, do we? Or outside Christianese, do we? Uh, We don't talk about how I was driving and then I repented and turned left instead of right. (laughs) Right. we, we don't use it very often outside christianese so so he loses his meaning almost because it's just christianese. What does it mean to repent? Well, repent has two ideas uh we'll just call it e and v e for emotive and v for volitional and and This is is a difficult word to to translate, and and repent makes good sense for us because repent has the emotional quality. If we're sinning and we repent of it, there is part of us that feels sorry for that thing, right? Um, But just being sorry for something isn't repenting. Repenting is saying, you know what? I feel sorry that I've done this, and I'm not gonna do it again. My intent is to turn from it. So the shuv, turning away, and naham often go together because there's a turning inside. In fact, some, some translations will take we will, will use the word overturned. My heart is turned over within me. Um, so the, the emotive part is that feeling, and the volitional part is my will, volition. I'm choosing not to do this. And so some, some preachers will say, repenting is changing your mind. And that's only part of the nacham. Nacham is changing your mind. I don't want to do that again. I changed my mind. I was going that way. I changed my mind. I'm going to go that way. But it it isn't simply volitional. There is an emotive part to this. Neither word occurs in a very short oracle. If I were a prophet living in the Old Testament time and I only had five words to use, two of them would be nacham and shuv. Probably, raah, turn from your raah, your evil wickedness, shuv. Why am I doing all this? Because these words are going to come up, but not in or, not in Jonah's mouth. So so Jonah preaches these five, these five words. Yet forty days, Nineveh will be overturned. yaminu is the first word there, and they believed. The men of Nineveh believed. Uh, Yaminu comes from the word amen, aman, aman, to believe. What does it sound like, amen, aman? Amen. amen. That's where we inherited it. In fact, when Jesus uses it, he's speaking in the Ar- Ar- Aramaic version of it. Amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you. But truly doesn't really quite capture it because aman means to believe. The verb is believe. So the adjectival or adverbial form might be Something to believe or truthful. So the English translation is truly, truly, I tell you, it's it's okay. But when at the end of a prayer, when, when we say amen, we're actually saying yeah, I believe that. Let's believe that together. Amen. So they amen, amon, they believe in God. Elohim. Amazing. Yet forty days none of will be overturned is all that it need all these people needed. One day's walk, five words. In other words, the the background that we got, Nineveh was so great, lay Elohim to God. Three days walk. That's a huge city, however you calculate this, right? We can do Canton in a day. Three days walk. Jonah just starts to walk in one day and says, Alright, Yeah, it's 40 days. Nineveh will be overturned. So the author is portraying Jonah as just barely doing his job. He's not going through three three days of journeys to, to preach everywhere. He's got five words to speak. That's it. So, okay, Jonah might have been in the whale, in the fish, and so he finally goes to Nineveh, but his heart's not in this, is it? And we get that in chapter four. His heart is really not in this. In chapter 3, we get a glimpse of it. Jonah's just barely going through and doing this, his job. But that's all it took. The men of Nineveh believed in God. Vayikara. Yes? This translation said believe God. Mm hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: to hear these five words I see and they believe God right. I mean, that, that's right. talk stuff. but you remember when Jonah, in chapter 1 Jonah was asked where are you from who are you what people group are you and, and what land are you from and Jonah just says oh I'm a Hebrew I'm Hebrew I'm Hebrew and I worship this God named Yahweh and Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth and made the sea and the dry land that's all it took and the men fear God and they worship God and they worship they make sacrifices to Yahweh and and make vows. So even then Jonah was not there to preach to the Nineveh, Um, to the sailors, right? The sailors had to ask him like w- what's going on? Who are you? Who's your god? What's happening to us? So so I think if we had to say well Jonah must have converted these people outside that narrative. He must have told them something else. Then I think what we're doing is Imagining something like how we would respond to a situation, right? How you, if you're Jonah and people seem receptive, wouldn't you share the gospel with them? Especially if they're receptive? Uh, but Jonah is the anti-hero in the story. In chapter four, we'll make this absolutely clear that Jonah was, just, he does not want these people living. Jonah wants all of Nineveh dead, clearly. He would rather have died than to have converted the Ninevites. And so the the three days journey to one day the emphasis of nacha the the, the emphasis of just beginning to talk, the emphasis of of removing all any any uh, vestiges of of prophetic speech, to take out nacham take out shuv, and to include nothing about Yahweh or even God. Now we'll, we'll we'll talk more about what did the Ninevites know. Uh, In just a minute, because the king will speak, the king of Nineveh will speak. Now, what did the Ninevites actually know? Since they only got this very short sermon, (laughs) five words. Uh, They believed in God, Ba Elohim, and then they and then and then they cried out. They proclaimed, they kara, they kara. So God says, Karah, to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't at first. He finally does, Karah. And what does it cause? Another Karah. Remember the series of duels, the hurling, when God hurls, the men hurl the cargo, and then finally that leads to, to Jonah being hurled over? We have a series now of Karah. When he, when he proclaims, even these five words, the men of Nineveh, karah etom a fast. Now, uh, for us uh, in the West, fasting, I don't know. Um, I have to do a test a few, a couple weeks, and I have to do a fasting test. And I'm thinking, that's not fasting. What do you mean? Just don't eat? Is that it? Like, yeah, that's all. Don't eat. Like, that's not fasting for me. <laughs> the word fast for me, som it means repentance or grieving or pleading before God, um, I guess we still talk about fasting of it's just not eating. But this is the other kind of fasting. They call a fast and he explains the rest if you look at the rest of that verse and they put on sakim, sackcloth. By the way, uh, the word Hebrew word for sack is sock. What? How's that possible? Well, it's actually a Hebrew word that made it into uh, Egyptian sack, sock, sackcloth. Um, And through Egyptian influence, eventually there's a whole lineage you can trace, uh, etymologically ends up in English. So the English word sack, like your knapsack, it's an ancient Egyptian word which was borrowed from the Hebrews, sack, same word. So sakim is he, sak, clause, or plural of sack or sacks. So they up, they put on sacks. And then here's another interesting turn of phrase: from their greatest to their smallest, from the great to the least, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Strange phrase. The typical Hebrew phrase for there would be from the oldest to the youngest. That's what this means, by the way: from the greatest to the yo- to the littlest. But it uses the word that we've been. uh, I I taught you last week or the week before. What does this mean? Great, gadol. From their gadol to their little ones. What? What does that mean? Well, it means the oldest. But it's it's, the author is choosing to use a word that's been repeated over and over throughout chapter one, and the author is returning back. Remember chapter one and three parallel each other? And we're returning to this word, and you'll see this throughout chapter, th- chapter three. And then chapter four really makes clear why this word is being repeated throughout. So from the greatest to the littlest, sackcloth. Oh, um, the mourning rituals of mourning and repentance usually go together. Remember the the, uh, the emotive part of repentance looks like mourning. Like if you're grieving, you're feeling sorry, right? That emotive part, that mourning part. Uh, There there were several traditions shared among the ancient Near Eastern world, how they grieve. So if somebody died or something terrible has happened, and what what they did was several things. Uh, Men often shave their heads or cut their hair, and they put on sackcloth. And sackcloth uh, sounds, that's what it is. It's a very rough material. Uh, and you put it right next to your skin. So you're, you're allowing the externals to reflect your internals. This is how you feel, all rough and raw, and your skin will become quite raw. Um, so that's the second thing that they did. other thing that they did was either sit in a pile of ashes, so that you're, you're gonna be constantly just breathing in this ashes or dirt or dust, the Hebrew word efer means dust or, or ashes, um, so they would sit there and sometimes they would put, their, put the ashes over their heads. So that w- it was a ritual um, that Israelites actually shared among their the cult- larger culture. So you see this practice uh, throughout the whole Fertile, fertile Crescent. It is. The tearing of the clothes actually only happens really when that event comes along with shock or surprise as well. So um, you see this, in, like, for example, in Kings when Josiah hears about the uh, the scroll that's been lost for so long and, and Hilkiah, the high priest, brings it to him and here's the covenantal scroll and Josiah, the king, realizes what, how they've been practicing religion, Yahwism, syncretized with, with Baalism, so, bringing p- temple prostitutes into the Temple of Solomon. And, and when Josiah hears this read for the first time, uh, what he does is he tears his clothes, his royal clothes. Uh, so, that kind of grief, like, what have we done? When that is mixed with the grief, then that's when the tearing of the clothes also accompanies. That's a great question, though. Um, other questions, by the way, inter- please interrupt me anytime. Other questions? Yes. I can't believe that could be Could be. And also it right. says he said it doesn't say God spoke to him or as sometimes the prophets were Right. Right. Again, um I don't want to say that there is some sort of a reality behind this story that the story represents. Uh, all we have is the story. And, and this, this is where things get tricky, because, um, for example, I can tell you a story about my grandmother, who was the matriarch of our clan growing up. She was a, a spiritual a mother to our whole family, extended family. I can tell you a story about my grandmother, and there is a reality representing uh, that, that story. I can tell you that story in a song. I can tell you that story in a very biographical, detailed, uh, almost historiographical way. Or I can tell it to you in an interesting kind of a fable-like story. Uh, In fact, I do, one one such story, which is absolutely true, when I talk about what it means to to truly believe in in Christ, because she's the one that really taught us that lifestyle. for really all of us. She was the first to come to Christ uh, in our own clan. So when I tell a story about her, it becomes almost legendary. So what I'm doing then is, th- when, when my students or my congregants hear those stories, uh, I, I'll use certain phrases or words that bring an, an emphasis to an idea. And I think that's what Jonah is doing, the book of Jonah is doing. It's telling a story Regardless whether you think that the, the book is histori- his, you know, it's histor- historical or not, it's actually happened or not, that's like beside the point. However it happened or didn't happen, the way it's being told is what we're emphasizing. Do you follow that? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, f- what, what rhetorical critics are doing, and, and that's part of what I do, is observe things about the story itself that might shed light on the, the, the major thematic points at the end. So really, like I said this is my first day, until we get to chapter 4 and finish it, we don't know where all these things are going. Uh, so some of this is in suspense. Like, what's with all the godoles? and And why is Jonah so reluctant? Why did he flee to begin with? Because uh, the author has withheld some information for us like a good storyteller does. And we get all that in chapter four. But until then, we're making guesses. But really, for me, they're not guesses anymore because I've read chapter four, <laughs> right? Yeah. We've read chapter four. So we're not, we're not saying, for example, that Jonah wanted to go, but he was prevented because we already know in chapter four, I didn't want to go. Jonah confesses, this is why I didn't want to go. So now looking back, a second reading of this text, and for for most of us, I'm sure it's at least a second reading of Jonah, we're now observing things. And this is, a. have you ever seen a movie called um, The Sixth Sense? Okay, I'm gonna ruin it for you, so if you wanted to see this movie and you don't know the ending. uh, So there's a little kid who sees dead people, right? I see dead people. And there's this character played by uh, Willis, right? That's his name, Bruce Willis, yeah. And and turns out at the end of the movie, He's been dead, right, the, the whole time. I am sorry if you really want to see this movie. He's been dead the whole time, okay? And the first time I saw this movie, I thought, whoa, that is crazy. Because I, I remember thinking, "Oh, well, he talked to the mom, didn't he? I remember a scene. So I rewound the, uh, I guess, went back on the DVD and saw that scene again. They don't talk. The mom sitting there, the ghost. <laughs> He's sitting there, but she's not even looking at him. She's just looking into. S- so the audience was kind of misdirected. There was lots of things like that. Everything that the ghost touches is red. Whoa, that's crazy! Everything that a dead person touches turns red, and the whole temperature thing. I don't know if you remember some of those. Like when there's a ghost, there's temperature variants. So the sec- so I thought, okay, that's crazy. So I went to, to the very beginning and saw the whole thing the second time and went the second, just immediately, because I saw it at home on a DVD. And so I watched it the second time and I thought, oh goodness, how did I miss that? Oh, how did I miss that? Oh, how did I miss this? And then I, I was watching it alone and so when my wife came home, I was like, you have to see this movie, baby. <laughs> this is crazy. And I'm like, oh, d- I'm so tempted to point stuff out to her, right? I'm like, look at that. See that red doorknob. Pay attention. We well can't do that though, right? Because I'm, then I'm cheating. I'm, I'm giving her clues. I don't want to notice all the red stuff that he's touching uh, or that he's not talking to anyone. I don't want to, and also the cut right after he gets shot, it goes to black. Boom, cut, black. Ooh, I, I didn't notice that the first time. So I wanted to point all these things out to her, but I didn't. I was so tempted. But she watched it the first time and I, there was an audible gasp. <laughs> Uh, it was so satisfying to hear her gasp <laughs> the moment that she discovered, he's dead? <laughs> <Here's a gasps> gasp. And I felt so satisfied. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then she's like, let's see it again. So I saw it four times in one day. <laughs> I watched it four times, and this is what's happening. Can you hear me? Okay. I am pointing out the red doorknob to you <laughs> in Jonah, right? We're reading it. as For me, this is like the hundredth time I'm reading Jonah, and I'm noticing all these things, and I'm showing you those those little almost hidden things, like the red doorknobs or, or that cut or... They're not talking to each other. Those details are what we're focusing on. And so uh, it's kind of cheating, right? We're cheating. I'm cheating. I've read this book so many times. Uh, but that was a great question. All that, all that to answer that, that question. Uh, is there more going on behind the scenes? We don't know. What do we? We only have what the storyteller told us. And the storyteller has told us that Jonah is barely doing his job. And this ridiculous use of gadol. All the color red. What's going on with all the red? Uh, we verse 6. And the word, the davar, the word reaches, reaches the, uh, the king of Nineveh. And then he... Kum, uh, where's that? Kum. He gets up. He rises from his seat, his throne. And then he causes his robes or his royal robes to fall down or to, he takes them off. And then he does something strange that a king should never do in this culture. He puts on sackcloth and he sits down on ashes kings don't do that this is a very humbling, humiliating thing to be experiencing and for him to be doing this in, in front of everyone, because you can picture this guy getting up from his throne his, his seat and then saying, you know I need to do this this word has reached me, and this is my response oh, there's so much going on there uh, the word for robe is glory there, his glory he took off his glory There is, a word, um, there is a word in Hebrew for robe, but this one emphasizes the glory of his robe. Uh, in other words, and the, and, the, and the throne. So the contrast is he's getting up from his throne, his seat of power. He's taking off his glorious garment. And what does he do? He puts on the sackcloth in contrast to his glorious garment. Sackcloth, this is very rough, cheap material, and then he sits again. He G- Gets up from the seat to the, the throne and sits down on the ashes. So there's a, uh, there's a contrast developing here of this king humbling himself. Verse seven. And he said, it's hard to translate this word, but it's something like caused a decree to happen so in your, in your translation he might, he might just say and he, and he decreed or something like that uh, he made a proclamation or a decree to happen uh, in Nineveh by the again this is the nominal form of that word uh, by the order of the king and his somethings what's that? nobles the Hebrew word for nobles would be sar sarim you know what we have here? Gadol. What? (laughs) Again, this is a strange use of the word gadol. His great ones. Okay. Again, this is strange. It's all the red stuff happening. Um, So he's by the decree of the king and his great ones, or his nobles, and he said, and and the proclamation said, Ha-adam. Adam. Adam, Adam, man, mankind, humanity, and Behemoth. This is uh, if you get the plural Behemoth. Uh, this is where we get the word Behemoth from. Uh, so Adam and Behemoth, mankind, humankind, and animal kind. Then they specialize. It spe- uh, specifies the the animal kind. Bakar is Bakar is. Uh, uh, cattle kind, and then tone is flock kind, so sheep, goats. So you got the, the cattle kind of animals and the sheep kind of animals, because those are the only kinds that the they were allowed to keep, right? They weren't allowed to keep pigs. Uh, and then in Nineveh, I'm sorry, I lost my point. Oh, there it is. Uh, and do not let them taste anything, and do not let them graze or pasture, uh, and, and not even water shall they drink. So the proclamation is the fast that the people had already started. So, so, the, so this story pictures a group of people who starts a fast, and the word reaches the king, and the king says, you know what, this is going to happen globally for us. This is going to be a whole citywide fast. Let nothing, not even animals, eat or drink anything. And, and the repetition, or the starting with the broad, Adam, human, humankind, and then Behemoth, and then specializing, specif- specifying, narrowing down, it shows the extent of this fast. Verse eight. Let them put on sackcloth, Adam and Behemoth. Humanity and animals. And let them cry out. Kara. Ooh, remember this? We've seen it several times already, haven't we? Kara. Let them cry out. As as the hurling had a sequence of actions, the crying out of Jonah is going to have a sequence of karas associated here. So let them cry out. Uh, the sackcloth again is the, is the morning. Crying out, though, what is this? What, what are they trying to proclaim? Nothing. Now, the, the reason I said the word means uh, proclaim or cry out, uh, for us, proclamation is public, isn't it? We think of proclamation as a, as a public crying out. Well, you can not cry out in private, and that's why I like the word cry out better. Uh, when I teach Hebrew, also, it kind of it's, uh, it helps them to m- remember "kara" as "cry out," so I, you know it's kind of alliteration. But cry out to Elohim, to God, in strength with all your might. Va shuvu, shuv. Let them turn, shuv. That word right there. Each from his way of ra'ah, wickedness, evil. Let each person turn from his ra'ah and shuv, and from the hamas, the violence, which is in their palms, in their hands. There is, a, by the way, just an interesting side note, Hamas. When we think of Hamas, that's the same word, Hamas, here, violence. Um, and then here's the question that uh, we were talking about earlier. What do the Ninevites actually know? What did this king know? Verse 9 begins, Mi yodea. Who knows? <laughs> They're guessing. He's guessing. This is not a phrase that says, you know what, if we repent... God is going to save us, because the prophet told us so. In fact, that is the other part of the prophetic voice throughout the Old Testament. The prophets say, repent, and God will relent as well. God will not punish you. God will not judge you if you repent. So please repent. We don't want the judgment, do we? And the answer should have been, oh, no, of course not. Let's repent, but they don't do that. They don't trust the prophets, and they keep on sinning, and God brings judgment. But they're guessing here, yes? Wouldn't, wouldn't there be enough closeness with various cities and countries that they would have some idea of the religion in the other place? Yes. To yes, and that's being exploited in the story, right? The story assumes that the Ninevites can talk to Jonah. Well, the Ninevites didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, Jonah would have had to in the, in, if there is a world that you're picturing he would have had to say something in Assyrian. Right? Unlike the Joppa sailors who are Canaanites in origin they would have shared a linguistic uh, common cognate language so they could understand each other. Nineveh, they spoke Assyrian. In fact, there are stories in the Bible when Ninevites when Assyrians come, they need a translator. Uh, so but then there's enough shared understanding that this is exploiting. Uh, even the idea that the word Elohim, Eil, the word Eil is God, and Elohim is the plural word for God. In fact, uh, sometimes the same word Elohim has to be translated gods. But we translate in the singular because the em ending can be a plural of majesty, plural of exaltation. So it's God most high, Elohim. But Eil, is a common word throughout the ancient world. In fact, uh, even the word Allah comes from the word Eyal. All is the same root word there. Uh, so the word Eyal means God in all of the known world at the time. So Elohim is the one. So here's the other word. When the men respond finally at the end of that story in chapter, two, um, chapter one, when the sailors f- repent and they start worshiping Yahweh, because he, he, they were told who this God was, Yahweh, Here, they don't know who this God is, so consistently, the word is Elohim, this God. They don't know. They haven't been told who Yahweh is, right? Um, But there is enough shared understanding that he can guess. In fact, what we're talking about, the shared common practices of mourning and grieving, that was shared, so there's lots of cultural... Uh, shared experience within this world. It's not a huge place if you really look at the map. If you go from, like, currently where where Iraq is, which would have been what Babylon was, and go all the way across to where Israel is today, that's not a big part. I mean, you'd have to zoom in on a Google map, and I usually do that in my class to show them how small this world really is so that Abraham could walk from Ur, the farthest part of the Mesopotamian, or Abraham's family could, because his, uh, his dad moved him from Ur to Haran, and from Haran to Israel is where uh, they travel by foot, and you can do that. Uh, great question, though. Uh, l- let's keep going. In, in Miudea, who knows? What are they guessing? How does your translation render the rest of that? Who knows? And then, wh- what does it say? Who can tell, who can tell what? God may, God, may turn and God may turn and relent. Let's finish this verse. Okay, so who, may, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his burning nostril. Did I talk about nostrils? Right? Yeah? Anger, burning anger. Uh, nostrils represent anger. Uh, long nostrils, though, means slow to become angry because you can go. <sighs> but if your nostrils are burning, it means you're breathing really fast and you're so angry. Um, who knows? Mio de, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent from, from his burning anger and he will not let us perish. Turn, yes? <laughs> Linda? Yeah. God may shuv and naham. God may turn and naham. This is strange, isn't it? This is where the, uh, I mentioned theological difficulties. How does God naham? How does God repent? Emotional and volitional. Emotive and, and voted. When you, when we think about repentance as both, what the guess what the king of Nineveh is guessing said, okay, he might feel sorry for us. Look at what we're doing. We're repenting, right? We're repenting, we're turning from each man turning from our, our evil ways, from the violence in our hands. So since we're repenting and we're turning, maybe God will turn and repent. That's their guess. Turns out to be a pretty good guess though, doesn't it? Miyode, who knows? Verse 10. This Elohim, God, saw the Asa. Oh, man, there's another word. Uh, Ma'ase is deeds or works, uh, but it comes from the verbal word to do or to make, Asa. Okay, keep that in mind. This is just an aside. Asa means to do or make. So the God saw their doings. That, that they shuv from their way raah their evil way their wicked ways va nachem ha elohim and God repented. This is the narrator talking now. This is not the the king of Nineveh guessing. The author of the Bible is telling us that God repented over what? Al-ha over the ra <gasps> which he said he would asa do to them and he did not asa. he did not do it whoa here's the difficulty uh, first of all can you have God repenting Apparently, in the Bible, you can. Here's what's happening. It's called symmetry, uh, literary symmetry. So you got the people of Nineveh, Nineveh, Naham, and Shuv. They guess, the king, king guesses, hey, maybe, who knows, by the way, other, other times that this phrase, this occurs, is when, when David hears that his son is going to die and he starts fasting and putting on sackcloth and mourning and he goes, mehodeah, who knows? Even David has to guess sometimes. So the king of Nineveh says the same thing, mehodeah, who knows? Maybe God will turn and repent. And the narrator tells us, he did. He turned. He repented over the evil. Where did I write that? I did I write? Oh, there it is. Oof. Wickedness. Evil. Now, your translations, modern translations, don't like this word to be evil or wickedness for God. So they'll render this as something like calamity. Do you see that in your translations? God relented or changed his mind over the calamity which he said he would do to them. Disaster. Destruction. But the word is Ra'ah. Right from the beginning, it was the Ra'ah of the Ninevites that invited the prophet to come. God says, There, Ra'ah has come up before me, go. By the way, this word is going to be huge in chapter 4. In chapter 4, God is going to say, Is it okay for you to be pouting like this? Is it Ra'ah to you? And Jonah will say, no, 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 this is tov. This is good. It's good that I am doing this. That's Jeremiah 18, there's an interesting passage in Jeremiah 18, where where Jeremiah is told to go to a potter and watch. So Jeremiah goes to a potter and watches. And And he notices something, that the potter doesn't always make what he wants. But the clay, the kind of clay, determines what the potter makes. And then... God talks to the prophet and says, you know what your job is? This is what prophecy is. And so it's God talking to his prophet, and God says, when I say, through you, when I say to a nation that I'm going to bless them, and they turn away from me, and they do evil, I will nacham, I will shuv, and I'll do ra'ah on them. When I tell a nation that I'm bringing ra'ah to them, and they repent, and they turn to me, I will nacham again and bring barach, blessings, to them. That's your job. Prophecy, in other words, was to get people to change, to repentance, so that God doesn't bring about destruction. Because think about it. This is not consistent with our theology. We, b- we believe the Christian God is a loving, gracious God. But God is just, Right? Uh, my, my, my wife and I do this all the time. When my son does something wrong, we get, somebody plays bad cop. I'm usually the bad cop. And my wife is the good cop. Now, there has to be justice. But sometimes, you know, you threaten something and you don't really want to do that. Have you ever been there? Like, you threaten something so big, you're like, oh, if I did that, that's just way too harsh. But it's just, because that's what I said I would do. So I need my wife to kind of bring the mercy back in wrath. Remember Mercy. Right, so when we play bad cop, good cop, in a sense, but it, uh, when so my wife's job at that point is to convince my son, all right, look, you really have to change your ways here, and to really talk to dad and, and convince him that you've really started a new path here, and, and you're not going to be doing this again. So plead with him.
0: That's why Jesus loved your friend.
1: So he comes and does it, and then I can, I can show grace because there's an intercessor, there's an advocate for him. Um, so that's what, I think this is, that's what the prophets are supposed to do. And, and you see this from the very beginning, Exodus 32. This is, I go back to this because Moses was the first prophet of our model of what prophets look like. And Moses spoke from God to the people, from the people to God as an intercessor. And in Exodus 32, when God says, I'm gonna wipe them all out. I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you because I told Abraham I'm going to make his seed as numerous as the sands of the seashores, as stars in the heavens. So I have to do that because I promised. But you're you're an Abrahamic seed. I'll just start over with you, and I can keep my promises, right? It looks almost like a loophole, but it's not. <laughs> Moses says, "Yeah, you're right to do that, but oh, hold up! What will the Egyptians think?" And he reminds God of Abraham again. Like, look what you said to Abraham. You're trying to get out of a loophole here, but. We, we're numerous now. You got to kill us all? And when that happens, when Moses will not budge, because God tells Moses at that in Exodus 32, leave me alone, go, so that, in order that, my wrath, the nostrils, will burn against them, and I'll destroy them all. The phrase, the syntax there is, leave me alone, so that, because if you don't leave me alone, I can't. Leave me alone so that has the implication that I can if you don't. Moses doesn't. He could have been the, the channel of God's blessings. He says, no, no, no. I don't want to be that. I want to be the prophet. So when Moses stands and intercedes for the people, God Naham over ra'ah. In the Old Testament, this is where the difficulty is. God plans ra'ah all the time and I think it's meant to be like this. Of course, God is not morally wicked or evil, but destroying an entire city of people, destroying all those Israelites because, yeah, they worship the golden calf and they deserve to die, but killing them all, that's a horrible thing in God's eyes. God thinks that's rah -ah. I don't want to do it. Prophet, stand before me. When he says, Leave me alone, so that, he's really saying, Stand and intercede. So I can't. So I won't. And in, in Jeremiah 18, God explicitly tells a prophet, That's what your job is. A prophet is not simply, Hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm done. That's why the prophetic voice always goes to Shuv and Nacham, Shuv and Nacham, Shuv and Nacham, because that's what God wants from the people. And that's when prophets are sent, right? So in theological terms, this is called divine repentance. Divine repentance means that God has an emotional experience and that God has a volitional experience. That God can say, like in Jeremiah 18, you know, I'm going to do this. But, you know, if I do that, I'm going to do that. By the way, we misuse the potter metaphor often in the church. Uh, we think of potter as, oh, he's the potter, he can do whatever he wants. That's a misuse of the metaphor. A potter, in fact, and I've done some pottery, has to work with the clay that he has, right? If you got a very, very uh, porous kind of loose po- po- uh, clay, you can't make a very sophisticated fine you know, item. You have to work with what you got. So God does this. Uh, I mentioned this before, accommodation. God works with what God has. And so if people repent, oh, this is what God wants to do. By the way, uh, when Nineveh is told, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown, I don't think that was false. Because the the author explicitly says, as according to the Lord, he did this. And, And what you were talking about, the prophecy was sufficient enough to cause this repentance to happen. But the credit really goes to the Ninevites and not to Jonah. I think that's the point of this story. The repentance and the nacham and the Shuv of the people. By the way, um, in chapter 4, this is a little, because we're out of time, this is a little preview here. In chapter 4, we're going to get a conversation between Jonah and God. When the city does not get destroyed, this was just, God did not Asa. God saw their Asa, their Masa, their, their deeds, and then God does not do the Ra'ah that God said he would do right so chapter 4 begins with Jonah sitting outside the city looking at the city to see what's going to happen so he's still hoping it'll get destroyed <laughs> and then he, he starts pouting and so God has a conversation is it right for you to be like this and God and, and Jonah tells God it is right even to my death in fact take my life I don't want to see this There is a sermon right there. Um, We're looking at through the lens of Jonah, the world, right? Jonah is our lens through which we interpret this book. And we're going somewhere that's ugly. It's going to get ugly in chapter 4, but at the end of the book, God speaks last. He gets the first word in Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the last word. And the last word is just redemptive and amazing next week. (laughs) All right, thank you. (laughs)